0: This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel
1: forward-thinking farming. Hey there and welcome to the Pioneer Agronomy Northeast podcast. We are on our 66th episode. This is the week of may 23rd i am chris Kuse. with me as always is emily Aligar. we are your hosts our topic today is what projects are the pioneer agronomists working on lately emily who are our guests
2: Thanks, Chris. Well, fittingly, we have two pioneer agronomists with us today for this topic. Um, You guys have met them before. I'm sure we have Jonathan Rotz here with us, pioneer field agronomist, and Ryan Permelio, pioneer field agronomist as well. Um, So we'll just have a quick share of your backgrounds. I know you guys have been on here before, but uh, Ryan, could you share about your background for anyone who might not have heard you on here before?
0: Yeah, uh, Emily, Ryan Camilla, field agronomist. I cover New Jersey and Delmarva um, down to the Bay Bridge tunnel there, Eastern Shore, of Virginia as well, too. i um, been with Pioneer a little over three years, Virginia um, Tech graduate, so glad to be here.
2: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us again, Ryan. Uh, Jonathan, could you share a little bit about yourself?
3: Sure thing. So I've been with Pioneer, I think it's 11 years now. Uh, cover Southeast, South Central Pennsylvania, um, and yeah, just... Uh, been doing research projects for a long time both uh pioneer and before that extension so this is kind of the uh heart and soul of what i do
2: awesome well thank you both so much for joining us we're excited to talk about a topic that pioneer takes very seriously and and puts a lot of time and effort into so thank you so much for joining us
1: yeah welcome again to both of you, jonathan you said 11 years it's like geez, time flies i think we're got, we're all getting old here means you're having fun, right, Chris? That's right. That's right. All right. So before we get to our main topic, we always like to start with a section we call the odd and unexplained, where we ask our agronomists to tell us about something they've seen recently in the field, um, which might be rare or something different or unexpected. So I had one. I'll I'll start. I want to ask you guys this question. So we've had, um, you know, we had some cooler weather in April Um, And now it looks like it's finally going to turn to be hot. But, you know, there were there were a fair amount of soybeans planted in April and a lot of them had seed treatment on it. Um, But, you know, some of those with that cold weather, they didn't really get moving. Um, So some of them we have seen have things like seed corn maggots and stuff. So tell us about, you know, why a seed corn maggot could potentially get in a bean that has been treated?
0: Yeah, I guess I'll take that one, Chris. So I, you know, to kind of echo what you said, the biggest thing we've seen is first of all, is more than ever, you know, it's kind of been creeping up each, each year, but more than ever, we've seen, you know, early planted beans pushing that middle of April um, timeframe, which is just something that we're not really used to um, in this part of the world. So so it's kind of been a trend where we're, we're learning on the fly for some do's and don'ts. Um, and obviously one of the easiest things you can do to kind of make sure you're as, as successful as possible is seed treatment. So with this year, we had some um, early planted beans and then we had a long stretch of basically just cool kind of mundane weather, not really anything over the 70s, nighttimes around the 40s, um, some rain here and there. But what we had was we had some beans germinate and then kind of hit the pause button on them. Um, and, and that's almost the worst case scenario in my mind, I'd rather either have that treated soybean sit underneath the ground and uh, be cold enough to where maybe it doesn't really do anything or have it out of the ground in 10 to 12 days. So what we've seen is um, this year where that bean kind of sits below the, the sea or the soil surface, there's the run of the gamut of, of pests there that are ready to chew on it. And when that cotyledon basically sheds the hole, um, a lot of that seed treatment ingredient maybe isn't as active or isn't as uh, as effective as we'd like it to be when the seed hasn't germinated. Um, and, and some some of the ingredients that are used throughout the industry do have some systemic um, capabilities to them, but the issue is, you know that soybean has to basically take up the the systemic property of, in this case, the insecticide and then have it inside of it to be able to fight off something like seed corn maggot. So, um, we've definitely been keeping a close eye on stands. Um, so we've run the, run the course almost here at the, the third or fourth week of May of sea corn maggot. We were actually looking at some yesterday that have, um, actually started to pupate and move into the, the actual adult fly stage. So that's good. Um, that means, you know, if we do have a replant situation, we can kind of hopefully bypass the, the larvae still feeding on them. Um, but what we're really hoping for is a lot of heat in the next three to four days to, to push some of those seedlings that are still hanging out, you know, an eighth of an inch or so below the, the soil surface and get them out of basically harm's way. Um, because now we've also started to see some slugs move in um, and insecticides on seed treatments aren't effective against slugs. Um, so it's a, uh, it's a wait and pray and hope the weatherman does you a favor. But I think it's important to remember that the, the seed treatment does its job but what we also need to accompany with that seed treatment is favorable emergence conditions. Cause that, that soybean or even corn, you know, if we're going to talk about it is just so vulnerable sitting there underneath cover. Um, and, and, you know, if you're not using something like row sweeps on the front front of your planter to move a lot of that trash away from the trench, or if you're not doing a very good job of closing the trench after the planter goes through that seed is really, really vulnerable, basically to anything that, that, you know, is looking for a snack. And then, you you know, a couple on the weather that we've seen, it hasn't really pushed any of those pests out of our seed zone. So it's not necessarily, um, it, it's odd for us because we don't plant a whole lot of beans early. Um, it, it has been good for guys that have been able to do it and harvest, you know, at, at, a, at a great time. But it's some things that we almost need to do on a don't list for guys that are trying it for the first time and some things you might want to consider before you throw beans in the ground.
1: Yeah, no, that, those are really good points. I mean, it's definitely, it's almost, it is actually essential if you're going to plant beans in April to have them treated um, because they're, they could be a lot more susceptible to things and, and it takes longer for them to get out of the ground. Um, so those, those are all really good points. And um, I'm excited about the warm weather here and, and getting everything popping and out of that ground. So now we're gonna move on to our uh, main topic here uh, to take a look behind the scenes on on the pioneer agronomist projects that they're working on. So let's start with you, Jonathan. Um, What agronomy projects are you working on for this coming year?
3: Well, so just real quickly, I threw down in front of me a bunch of the stuff that, and there's like six different projects that I'm on, but I'm not gonna bore everybody with each and every one. We'll go with one of the main ones and, and really a bunch of the other projects that I work with piggy piggyback on this as well. So um, one of the big ones that we're working on is what's called our Nutrient Biomass Sampling Initiative. And this is something we've been doing for a couple of years. And it kind of even comes back around the whole we've talked a little bit in the past about PKP characterization, which is some other stuff that we continue to do with um, our, our reps as far as trying to get more and more data off of our PKP plots, whether that be how much nitrogen is there, whatever else. Um, uh, But a lot of this comes back to, you know, I look at at Pioneer as the largest, basically the largest uh, ag research institution in the world. Um, And one of the things that is probably very out of date for agriculture is just our nutrient utilization in the plant. Uh, when you think about the core research that was looking at, you know, how much fertilizer we have to put down, what what really is necessary to create yield, there's a lot of that stuff that's, you know, well over 40 years old. Um, the crops that we were growing at that point in time, the management that we were doing was worlds different than it is today. Um, just even the yields that we were getting, you know, they would have not, never even dreamed about farm averages where their highest yields were and actually much surpassed that. So things like this nutrient biomass sampling, um, we're actually going out at different stages and sampling the entire plant. And most most listeners are probably used to doing some tissue sampling, things like that. Um, And and that's great. It's still something that we utilize even internally in some of these trials. But what we're looking at is actually taking an entire plant sample um, in these fields and then partitioning that plant. So we're gonna look at where does that nutrition lie within the plant? How is it moving within the plant? Um, and some of the really cool stuff behind the scenes that's going on with this is this helps us in actually modeling how that plant works, how the nutrient flow works throughout that plant. And then obviously all this stuff is correlated to yield at the end. And I'm not the only person doing this, right? This is the other strength of Pioneer is we have individuals across the entire nation who are pulling these samples and you know this humongous data set comes from this. I like to tell the guys that I work with this is this is one of the things that just impresses me about pioneer you know I, like I said earlier I came from uh, Penn State extension before this so a little bit of a university background as well. but, you know, the one, the one interesting thing in the university setting, you, you tend to have some geographic boundaries. Sure, you might work with another university and maybe cover a couple of states. Um, Pioneer is a worldwide organization. So most of these initiatives that we talk about here today are at least covering the entire U.S., so if I have a really great year and we tend to be really high, we put a bunch of points on that map that are a bunch of high yield and we get to understand that plant under optimum conditions. Yet if somebody you know, somewhere else has a very poor year, we get to understand that plant in, in you know, tougher conditions. We do this year after year and we just have an absolutely immense data set. We understand what's happening in the plant better And then the the bottom line of all of this is then we can relay that back to the customer to understand how to better manage that plant in order to maximize yield. It doesn't mean that we're trying to get the absolute, you know, crazy top out of everything, but, you know, every single year, can we be moving that farm average up a couple of bushels and especially? Can we be doing it maybe with some of the same nutrition that we've always done, just applied smarter, you know, put into the plant a different way, whatever it might be in order to get more margin for our customers? Um, Because, you know, it's all fun to it's all fun to do something really good one year. But as one of my friends and, uh, you know, customers always says is his his ultimate goal in farming is to be able to have fun and do this again the following year. So we want to keep that margin and keep everybody uh, everybody doing well financially as
2: well.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you brought up a good point there, and this is good timing because you're right. I mean, we're we're going more towards kind of spoon feeding that crop, giving it what it needs when it needs it, right? Um, so to be able to have your biomass research here, um, and like you said, not only for you, but all the agronomists across the country doing it uh we'll be able to show the growers hey this is what the plant had at each growth stage and and then this is what the yield was from it and kind of when you put all those data points together in one location uh that that is really cool and will really help them understand what the requirements are for that plant for each different yield level is that kind of our end goal for this Absolutely
3: and and just a really good practical example of this is something I've been talking with a lot of my producers about this uh over the winter and early spring here and that's that's boron application so a lot of guys are you know putting boron in like a two by two or something with the planter because it's super easy but when we look at this when we look at this data we see that a lot of that boron is not needed and really a lot of these micros um they're they're not structural right so they're they're being utilized in the reproductive stage well that's a good many days after planting and and in some scenarios that's totally fine because it's going to be there it's going to be available but one of the biggest antagonists to getting boron up in the plant is phosphorus. Well I deal with some guys who are on some extremely high phosphorus soils and what we don't want to do is have that out there so long that you know we might have some binding or just have that less available so in those scenarios could we be better taking some of that same money and doing it with, like you said, maybe more of a spoon feeding a, a folio or something down the road? And so the more we understand about these things, the more maybe we can take the same dollars that these guys are spending and utilize it in a way that brings more yield off of the same dollar. And that's the that's the ultimate goal.
2: That's great. And I guess I yeah, hadn't really thought about if you think, you know, university-wise versus, you know, pioneer and just the the big spread that you have um, to gather that information and the other agronomists that you guys are working with every year on these projects. I'm curious, um, and either one of you guys can speak to this, is local research projects. So is there anything that, you know, you ran into locally um, that really got your gears turning and so you decided that you wanted to do a research project on it and maybe it was a one-off research project but it was something that popped up here in the northeast that you guys you know grabbed a hold of and ran with
0: i'll uh, i'll set jonathan up here i know he did some work with potassium last year um in his neck of the woods one thing i'll say to to kind of wrap up the biomass thing is we this will be the second year we've done it um, and we have some, you know, preliminary data, but we always like to get enough site work basically to, to know that the data we're talking about is, you know, supported. But one of the things that, that I noticed or that we learned last year um, for, for two different nutrients really is nitrogen and potassium. We saw that, you know, for areas that we actually had the highest yielding one, our, our ratio for nitrogen to potassium really needed to be one to one and then in areas you know that we what we considered a moderate yielding environment we were at like a 0.8 to 1 so basically that's saying that in order to have higher yielding corn our potassium uptake needed to match our nitrogen uptake and i think a lot of times we have we run into agronomic issues where we can almost tell um, that maybe our nitrogen rates a lot higher than our, our potassium rate whether that be grain quality or stalk strength late season some of that kind of stuff so you know, Jonathan and I, we run into service calls where, where we can we can have a pretty good idea of what's going on. And then with us going out and pulling these samples and actually having um, numbers to support it from the same areas that we're seeing some of these service calls, it's good to kind of shine a light on it. And then Jonathan, you also did some some specific work with potassium last year, right?
3: Yeah, and
0: it, it's a really
3: cool tie-in with this whole idea because really where my, where my peak on my interest came from was some of this... Uh, PKP characterization studies where, you know, we continue to see potassium showing up as this major player and everything else. So what I did last year was I went out and actually um, created some strip trials uh, with a bunch of cooperators we had was, uh, what was it almost 30 trials across the state where we had, um, you know, six rows that had uh, potassium applied, uh, six rows that didn't and and replicated out. so the, the fun part about that was this was this idea that came from a national project. And then kind of you get to you get to do it locally. And, you know, Pioneer was extremely supportive of that. Um, and going back to what Ryan said, like, you know, one of the issues that you run into with this all the time is data can be pretty noisy. So, you know, unfortunately, on that one, it was not just a absolutely, hey, this is exactly you know, we got X number of bushels. But we saw some incredible interactions within the plant going on within those things. I think it, it also teaches us a little bit more about how potassium is moving, uh, piques our curiosity even more on some of these biomass samplings and other things to look at. And then it also still points out that, uh, you know, over time, the more we can build that soil potassium level up, the, uh, the better our our actual, you know, yield environment that we're going to create for it is. So again, when we get into these situations where we have high fertility costs and everything else, we can play around, you know, maybe a little bit with that, but but it still underlines the importance of solid nutrition for that plant. And lastly, I will say like we had a couple of places that were extremely low potassium and I would have expected this huge response. We didn't see it, but what it did point out was all those interactions that we're talking about. You know, We had some places where we had some different levels of some micros that were, you know, uh, it would appear were really hindering the uptake of that potassium in the plant, which just comes back to the complexity of agriculture that we work with, right? You can't ever just have one silver bullet. that You just say, hey, I'm gonna throw this out here and get an extra 80 bushels. We need to look at the whole thing. We need to have uh, folks that are willing to sit down and, and say, hey, you know, what are all the different levels that are in the soil? what's being taken into the plant and how do we react during the, uh, during the year even. And again, all of this research that we're doing that continues to build that
0: portfolio of knowledge so we can uh, make better suggestions. And and, and, uh, Chris, one more thing. The other thing that that we really found and that we, we talk about a lot, but it really kind of made it come to fruition too, is sulfur. We talk a lot about sulfur here, low organic matter, highly leachable soils, between our high yield and moderate yield environments, last year we saw a 30% increase in the amount of sulfur that was taken up. So that's, you know, let's just say 40 bushel difference in yield environments and almost 10 pounds more in sulfur that we found um, in the corn plant. So um, I, I think a lot, the next question that I think we're hoping to answer this year with a project like this is, we know that we need more of certain nutrients to elevate yield levels but necessarily when do we need them? A lot of our sulfur goes out here with the planner or early side dress, but is that the right time? Do we need sulfur later in that corn plant's life since we're seeing basically at the end of its life, there's 10 more pounds you know, in the plant with a 40 bushel yield swing. So I think as we continue to do this project, we'll nail down maybe some of the levels we need to see. And then we can also, with the timings of the sampling we're pulling, basically figure out when the most effective or most efficient time to apply certain things is.
1: So, yeah. And that's, that's a great point. Like what Jonathan said about boron, I mean, boron leaches more than more than nitrogen does, you know, so you know, the timing of things like that as well. I, I think that's great. Um, I, uh, I, I just really like these projects and I think that it shows that, you know, pioneers, not just trying to, to sell the seed, but yet also trying to help farmers out in every way that we possibly can, um, but great stuff. So Ryan, um, I wanted to ask you, what projects do you have going on this year that might be a little bit different?
0: Yeah, so um, last year locally here, we started our first, it was the inaugural soybean yield competition we did um, within our district. So, you know, same thing that we kind of talked about how we started with guys wanting to grow, you know, higher yielding beans. They want to push the limits on some of the beans that they're able to grow. So we wanted to try and help them. Um, So we signed up and and got people to do a yield contest with us. So um, we're doing it again this year for anybody that catches the podcast. So get your local rep or territory manager or field grommets to get you signed up. Um, But what we saw was, or at least what I saw was pretty much anywhere that we had early planted beans um, that were had the yield potential above the 80, 85 bushels. We basically saw them lodge at some point. Um, And to some extent, throughout the year. I would say, you know, I had everything from beans that were lodged at the end of July, 1st of August with, we have heavy rains and some winds. And when the beans just get that big, they kind of lay down. And then once they get laid down, they don't ever really stand back up. And then, you know, you just have your, your typical, um, lodging at the you know as we start to get to maturity with tall beans as well so that kind of piqued my interest um and in some of the things we can necessarily maybe not not to a nutrient aspect but if we can have that bean stand up later in the year and it can capture more sunlight longer in its life and also if we can have that bean stand up later and it'd be easier for the header to get through it and we're not shattering so many beans and having so many beans maybe come out the back of the combine can we just pick up bushels by making the bean stand better is pretty much the question. So for this year, we're going to do some trials using um, some plant growth regulators this year um, at different growth stages. So we're going to work with basically uh, three hormones within the plant, and we're going to go out at uh, two or three different times and spray over the top foliar and see if we can get the beans to stand up. So basically we're going to try to trick the levels um, of of a certain couple hormones within the soybean and change the levels of them and see if that can basically um, cause the bean maybe to grow more laterally than vertical. So instead of uh, growing up and down, we can get it to go side to side and branch more. And also the thing is when we get hot um, here and we, and we actually have high GDU accumulation and we have enough water, and we have enough soil fertility, our nodes tend to get extremely, extremely elongated. And when you have that, um, you don't necessarily put as many pods on per plant. Um, so, you know, maybe if we can hit it at some of those times where our soybeans are, are growing vertically really fast, we can shrink some of those nodes, maybe add two or three nodes on per plant, and then therefore pick up a, a couple pods and some more beans and some more yield. So, it's gonna be interesting to see. Um, I, I think timing's gonna be the, the biggest aspect of it we already have some people using growth regulators in corn um, at in furrow and that kind of stuff and seem to be having some pretty good success with it um, but I'm, I'm interested in the soybean portion of it because uh, you know it's not it's not a I don't think it's gonna be too hard to get some some beans to stand up and if we can do that uh, with some of the the lodging issues that we tend to see here that might be an eight to ten bushel swing you know it, just by getting the bean to stand so we'll uh, we'll have to get back on the podcast in the fall and see how it works out.
1: Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I think all the projects are really interesting and, and we could probably sit here and talk about it all day or even, you know, do 10 podcasts on the projects that the agronomists are doing um, with the agronomic trials that we have. So Uh, I mean, we haven't even touched on, you know, the basic ones that we do from the population trials to, you know, to then planning date trials, Um, you know, there's just so many of them. And then, of course, we always have our PK, we have hundreds of our PKP trials out there every year with the different hybrids. Um, So we will definitely have to, uh, do another one of these. Um, it's 100% certainty that we're going to make sure that we, we do one in the fall to get some answers on, on how those trials did for you this year. And, uh, and and we could continue to talk about this and maybe we do do another, uh, podcast to be continued on, on more agronomic trials that we do around, but we really appreciate all that you guys do. And we know, um, we know that our growers do i would say that um anybody who is interested in all of the the trials that pioneer is doing every year uh we pioneer does come out with a, with an agronomy research book every year um in the february time frame and it when i say a book i mean it's a book uh it, it's quite a few pages there all the different trials that they have so um talk to your local rep um, they get sent those books every year and the agronomists have them every year so please feel free to reach out to them. They can get you a book. And we, again, pioneer makes one every year with all of the new trials. And, uh, you can look into those. They're, they're really fascinating read. That's for sure. So next we'll move on to the section of the podcast. We call the weekly watch out. This is a section where we ask our guests, um, to talk to our growers about what they should be looking for over the next seven to 14 days. Um, Jonathan, what do you think?
3: So this is a, this is the fun time of the year, right? Um, we we get to watch these crops that we've uh, we've worked hard on peeking through. The interesting part about this year is the rest of the work isn't done yet. You know, there's a lot of years where we feel like we can really condense planting and get a bunch of stuff in and then turn to uh, early season scouting and such. But we're at that place. Uh, we talked a little bit about soybeans earlier, and obviously corn is peeking through the, the earlier planted stuff. But we've still got a lot of field work going on and and I see this as as a crucial watch out of those those mornings where, you know, it's just a little wet to plan or you just had a shower, go ahead and take that opportunity and start walking some of those fields that are up that are coming up and really paying attention because the quicker we can catch some of the uh, issues at hand, you know, the the quicker we're going to be able to turn around and and remedy that even up to if, if it would need like a replant or something. The other thing that I find is a benefit for a year like this, where we've, we've kind of gotten stretched out over planting, and, and I'm right there with everybody else, I like it when it's condensed, but, you know, this is the type of year where you can get out there and some of your earliest planted stuff, if you've got something that you weren't seeing on your planner that's an issue, you may actually be able to go back and remedy that issue because you saw it on some of that, you know, early emerging things and go back and check, you know, hey what's up with row eight anyway? Why is it, why does it seem like it's a little bit ahead or a little bit behind and, and maybe make everything even better later on. And then I'll kind of kick it over to Ryan. I know he's got some thoughts uh, right with me as well with uh, some of these GDUs that are coming on. I mean, it looks like we're going to get super hot and kind of maybe some comments towards the weed side of stuff, Ryan. Yeah,
0: we're a little bit ahead. Um, so it, in my mind, I feel like we did our burn down forever ago. I don't know if it's just the spring stretching out as long as it is, but uh, we got a lot of guys that are gearing up to do second pass herbicide on corn and beans from when they from when they did their burn down, maybe a, a month ago, maybe probably more than that for some guys. So I would just urge people to get out there and scout for weeds. Um, when you see your corn and your beans growing, so are the weeds. And make sure that your targeted, you know, second pass application is going to do a good job in battling the weeds that that you're running into. We're seeing a lot of mare's tail already that's at that three to four inch level um, that's kind of pushed through. So, you know, read the label, know what you're applying, know weed heights and all that kind of stuff. And don't just think that maybe the same plan you drummed up in in January and February is going to work um, with some of the GDUs we're getting ready to get here in the next
1: couple of days. Yeah, those are all great points. Um, definitely need to be out there. I mean, the best, best thing you can do is, is have the boots on the ground in those fields and walking them and uh, seeing if you have any problems and catching them as early as you can. So thank you all for joining us today on the Pioneer Northeast Agronomy podcast. If you have any questions regarding the current Pioneer Agronomy projects, please contact your local Pioneer rep or your agronomist.
2: And to get more information about the Pioneer Agronomy projects, you can go to pioneer.com and be sure to ask for that Pioneer Agronomy research book from your uh, territory manager or your Pioneer sales rep. And be sure to tune in next week when we discuss another timely agronomic topic. We hope you enjoyed the conversation this week. And don't forget to search Pioneer Agronomy Northeast on your podcast app for more insights and solutions fueled by forward thinking farming. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button while you're there. Thanks everyone for joining us.
1: Thank you for
0: listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.